Do take a copy of God's Word, and we'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7, page 230, if you use the Bible in front of you. First Samuel chapter 7, verse, beginning in verse 2 through verse 14. This is the word of God. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel in Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. Thus far, God's word to us this morning. Perhaps you've been in the unfortunate uh, situation uh, where you've messed up things really badly uh, with a close friend, a loved one, maybe a spouse, Uh, And you've messed them up so bad that this is the thought that's going through your head. Uh, Is there anything I could ever do to to make things right again? Uh, what, What in the world could I possibly do to make amends, to restore the relationship? Is there any way, is there any hope that this person will let me back into their life? Those are the kinds of questions Israel is asking regarding Yahweh, their God, at this point in the story. It's not the first time they felt that way, and it's not going to be the last time either. But right now, they're fretting over what to do in order to be right with God, to return 
uh, to God, to get on good terms with him again. Maybe you've been there before with God. In fact, maybe that's where you're at this morning. You're wondering, what do I need to do to be on good terms with God again? Maybe the reality of your sin has come home to you. You feel the guilt. You feel the burden of all that. And you're wondering, is there any possible way God will welcome me back? Well, if we look at, uh, take a close look at this chapter, I think uh, we'll be helped in those questions uh, of what it means to return to God. And we can map out the movements of this chapter uh, by noting that it begins with Israel in a state of deep contrition, and then they move to taking action. Their contrition moves to action. After that, we see there's a dire need for intercession, and it ends with a divine confirmation that God indeed has welcomed them back. And so that's really the, the major movements of this chapter, contrition, action, intercession, And then, finally, confirmation. First, we find Israel in a state of deep contrition. Look at verse 2. Verse 2, please. You see there it says that Israel has been lamenting after the Lord or mourning after the Lord. They're groaning sorrowfully on account of their condition, and they're turning to God, finally, for help. Let's remind ourselves what their condition is. We have to go back to chapter 4, actually. Uh, we see that they are not contrite in chapter 4. They're, they're cocky, right? This is when they go to war with the Philistines without actually uh, seeking the Lord's help. Uh, they are arrogant in their own strength until they're soundly defeated. And then they realize, oh, we forgot Yahweh back at home. And they re- return to grab the, the God box, the Ark of the Covenant, which they're treating like a lucky charm. And they bring it back into battle. And because they've dishonored the Lord in this way, the Lord dishonors them by allowing the ark, the symbol of his presence, to be taken uh, into Philistine captivity. And the Philistines, though, uh, received judgment, painfully embarrassing judgment, uh, because of the way they treated uh, Yahweh uh, through the, throughout the seven months that the ark was in their territory. But what was surprising and very humbling was that even once the ark was returned into Israelite territory, the Israelites also received a judgment, a, 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 yeah, a chastening from the Lord. Now, why is that? Well, clearly, the nation wasn't treating Yahweh a whole lot differently than the Philistines had been. And so, ever since its return to Kiriath-Jerim, we read there in verse 2, they just kind of let it sit there for 20 years, a long time passed, some 20 years. But yet, during that time, spiritual movement had taken place, um, there is a sense with the people that things aren't right. Things need to change. They need to do something to, to fix things. They, they're sensing the pain of God's absence. And so they lament. They lament after the Lord. They mourn after the Lord. And this really is the first step in returning to God. You need to have this sense of contrition. The shorter catechism defines repentance unto life as having a true sense of sin, and also a grief and hatred of sin. You need to recognize sin for what it is, and you need to hate it. It needs to make you sad. You need to mourn the reality. If if sin and its nasty effects don't cause you to grieve, then that means you are far from God indeed. On the other hand, the closer you get to God, 
the more you fall in love with his character and his holiness, the more you will hate that sin. That contrition is a sign of repentance, of returning to God. The NIV interprets this phrase, lamenting after, to mean just that. This is how you read verse 2 in the NIV. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So contrition is the first sign of repentance, the first sign of returning to God, but it can't be uh, the entire thing. It doesn't, just because you feel bad about sin doesn't mean you've actually repented. Rather, your contrition needs to then take the form of action. In verse 3, Samuel, whom we actually haven't heard from since chapter 4, is back on the scene, and his absence in the narrative is another sign of God's judgment upon the people. Just as he removed the ark, the, the sign of his glory, the presence of his glory from the people, he removes his mouthpiece, uh, his prophet, as it were. So we haven't heard from him in a while. But finally, Samuel is, is called back, and the first thing he does to test the genuineness of the people's repentance uh, uh, is to say, if you are returning, if it's real, if this is true, then you're going to do something. And what does he call them to do? He says, you need to put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. This is, how, this is a, a, a sign of the genuineness of repentance, right? Feeling bad isn't the sign of genuineness. And, and Paul will talk about that, the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. Anybody can feel bad about their sin and, and the consequences it can have uh, for ourselves or even for other people. It can make us feel bad, but that's not the sign of God, godly grief. Samuel helps us to see what the sign is. The sign is you're going to change. You're going to do something different so that God isn't continually grieved by your sin and so that you restore things with him. So Samuel says in verse 3, If you're returning, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So there's, there's really a twofold instruction. The first is to uh, destroy the, 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 the idols and to devote themselves to God. Destruction and devotion. Uh, first, they, they must destroy the idols that they've been worshiping in place of, or more likely probably in addition to Yahweh. One of the false gods mentioned is, is the Ashtaroth. That's a reference to a Canaanite fertility goddess, Ashtoreth. In the Canaanite system, uh, her worship included cult prostitution, uh, a lewd, debasing behavior that now had been adopted by the Israelites, which is really shameful, um, excused as a form of legitimate and even reverential worship, prostitution. Uh, and so what, what Samuel is saying here when he says, put away the foreign gods in the Ashtaroth is not He's not saying throw away that figurine that you keep on your mantle place that you pray to before you head out the door. You know, when this is the phrase often used in scriptures, put away the false gods, that's not the same as put away the dishes, right? There's, there's something more uh, that's, that's, that's intended there, uh, quite a lot more. It's not just picking up an object and placing it somewhere different. It's, it's about a change of lifestyle. Put away this sexual immorality, Get rid of, of this practice that you've adopted and that you've, you've now habituated yourself to. Change your lifestyle, overcome your sexual addictions, 
Put an end to gratifying the lusts of the body. That's what Samuel is saying. That's all packed into this, put away the Ashtaroth. Not so easy then, is it? It also hits pretty close to home as well. We're talking about Ashtaroths and cult prostitution sounds so very ancient and removed from us. But the reality is uh, sexual sin is never very far from any one of us. The essence of Canaanite worship lives on today in our world in the sexualized entertainment that seeps into almost everything that we read and watch. And of course, the proliferation of pornography. The Israelites seemed to think that they could worship Yahweh part of the time and then worship their bodies the other part of the time and that he would be cool with that. Well, he's not cool with that. And I think if the statistics are to be believed, and I'm sure the statistics are, are underrepresenting the reality, um, then that means that Christians think they can do the same thing, especially when it comes to pornography. I can worship God on Sundays. I can even worship him, uh, you know, th- throughout the week, private family worship, but then I can also do my own thing, and he's cool with that. I can worship my body. If you want to return to God, if you want to be in, be in sweet communion and fellowship with him, it means destroying any and all sin that separates you from him. It means destroying habits that drag you away from him. It means changing your lifestyle. So repentance is not just emotional, it takes action. Put away the idols. What idol is it for you that that God is speaking to you today, saying, put it away? And he doesn't mean just reorganize. He's saying, no, you actually need to revolutionize your life. The first action Samuel calls them to is destroying idols that occupy our heart. And if you feel like that sounds like an impossible task, then good, because it is. We can't do it on our own. And that's why William Cooper uh, taught us to pray, saying, The dearest idol, whatever that idol might be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. We need the Lord's help. And apart from him, we could never destroy the idols that keep us from him. The second act that Samuel calls the people to is devotion to God. In other words, it's not simply enough to to vacate pagan practices. They need to be replaced uh, with with righteous practices, with a pure pursuit of God. And so that's why we speak of repentance as both turning from sin, but also turning to God. If God is not the object to which we turn, then the only other choice is more sin. So we turn from sin and we turn to God. And so he says, again, in verse 3, direct your heart to the Lord serve him only. We need to make God the center of our lives. That's what it really means to return to the Lord. You know, if you think about a husband who maybe pleads with his wife to take him back after he's been uh, unfaithful, uh, he hasn't really in any sense come back to her if he still maintains those other relationships um, that he was previously having in secret, right? To come back to his wife doesn't just mean moving back to the house. It means making her the priority, making her the only woman for him. That's what Samuel's after for the people, right? Serve him only, not even mostly, 
but only. You're not serving anybody else. You're not serving anything else. In his classic book on repentance, uh, the Puritan Thomas Watson, and I recommend you get this, uh, The Doctrine of Repentance. It's like 70 pages. It's really readable, even for Puritans. Sometimes they're readable. And uh, Thomas Watson says this, in true repentance, the heart points directly to God as a needle points to the North Pole. That's real repentance. You're turning back to God. He says, it's not enough to forsake the devil's quarters, but we must also get under Christ's banner and wear his colors. You need to be on the right team. And God indicts his people in Hosea chapter 7 um, for this very thing. He says uh, in Hosea 7, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. They return, but not to the most high. They're making a change, but not to Yahweh. And that's the exact thing that Samuel is urging them against. Their turning must be a turning to God and only to God, entirely to God. And then you look at verse 4, and it seems like the response is both immediate and heartfelt. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. And so because of this, as you keep reading in verse 5, Samuel calls for a special worship service, sort of like a rededication service, uh, where the people are going to consecrate themselves again to the Lord. Uh, Again, this is part of the devotional aspect of repentance. Um, And the heartfelt nature of their repentance is seen in that we read verse 6, they drew out water and they poured it out before the Lord. That is certainly quite the sacrifice in the arid climate in the desert in which they live. They pour out the water they have, and then they also fast. But what happens now is they've gathered together for this this, um, rededication service, this worship service. The Philistines have heard about it. Oh, look at this. Our enemies, the Israelites, all happen to be in the same place at the same time. Wouldn't this be a great opportunity for us to launch a surprise attack upon them. So that's what they seek to do. As they're mustering their troops, the Israelites hear of it, and they get afraid. And why are they afraid? Why are they afraid? I mean, they've mourned over their sin. They've destroyed their idols. They devoted themselves to Yahweh. And even so, as their enemies mount their attack, they're, they're, they're nervous, and they're crying out to Samuel to help them because they're not quite sure if Yahweh is on their side. Why? After all the steps they've done, do they still doubt it? And, and the answer is because um, the, the, the penitent sinner, the contrite sinner, the, genuine, um, the genuinely penitent sinner knows there, there is no amount of steps one can follow that really makes us good with God. Right? We can never say, well, of course God's got my back because I did A, B, and C. Right? Yes, Israel has done what they've been called to do, but that is not and never can be the basis for their confidence. It should never be the basis for our confidence. Well, God must do this because I've done this for him. No, the basis of our confidence is the mediator we have between us and God. And that's why Israel, at this moment, when they're afraid, they reach out to the one man they can say in the entire nation has the favor of God upon him. They reach out to Samuel. And they say, Samuel, cry out to us. Now, Samuel's already done this for them, right? Um, He's already come to the people. He's spoken um, God's word to them in verse 3. He's told them what they need to do. And in verse 5, he says, I will pray to the Lord for you. He's already offered to to be this mediator. But now look at verse 8. We see the people are are 
sort of pleading with him not to stop doing it. Yeah, you said you're the mediator, but please keep on mediating. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us so that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. They recognize that it's not their tear-filled eyes or their parched mouth or their empty stomachs that's going to make God have favor upon them, make them worthy in God's sight. They need Samuel. They need the holy prophet. They need the one who has God's favor. And do you see the gospel here? Do you see how this is a beautiful picture of what you and I need? We need Jesus Christ There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2. Here, we're given a wonderful picture of the way God accepts us. We can cry our eyes out. We can fast until we starve to death, but none of that is going to give us the righteousness that we need to stand before God. Jesus is the one who stands before God for us. We cry out to him. We cry out to him. Samuel recognized this special, unique role he had at the na- in the nation at that time. I will cry out to the Lord for you. I will pray to the Lord for you. I'll be this mediator for you. Jesus knows his role too. Jesus knows his job. He knows he's the mediator. And this is what he does. This is what he does. He never turns us down if we seek to come to the Father through him. In fact, dear sinner, I can tell you today with absolute 100% certainty, that's the only way you can get to God the Father. It's through this mediator. It's the only way, but it's always the way that works. Jesus never turns anybody away. He knows his job. This is what he does, and he loves to do it. Have you pleaded with Christ today to make you right with God? Have you sought the intercession of the one whose job it is to intercede? This is what he does. There is no sinner beyond his reach. There is no division that's too great for him to mend. So hear these soul-saving words from Hebrews. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's what he does. It's what he does. Maybe you feel like you're in the the uttermost parts of of sin and sorrow. Well, that's where he saves, to the uttermost. All our acceptance before God is because of him. God has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. If we're not in Christ, we have nothing. But now that we're in Christ, we can... We can say, my God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child, and I shall no longer fear. The nation of Israel receives a a blessed confirmation that the Lord indeed has been reconciled to them, that he has welcomed them back. They, They had returned to God, but the question was, has he welcomed us back? We're there on the doorstep. Has he opened the door? And now they receive a confirmation that the Lord indeed has welcomed them back in the deliverance that he grants them from the Philistines. That's in verses 10 and 11. Although Israel, they're going to get the, you know, the W on their scorecard in this battle against their enemies. Really, the author of Samuel wants us to see it's God who got the victory. He uses what's called a divine passive to prove the point when he talks about the, 
the uh, Philistines in verse 10 were defeated before Israel, not by Israel, but before Israel. The Lord is the one who's defeated them. Israel wins, but the Lord is the one who's done the work. So God's mercies to the nation is the proof that he's welcomed them back, that he's with them, that he's for them. In the same way, God's many mercies to us are signs that he's been reconciled to us through the death of Christ, and he is indeed for us. Where we get hung up in the Christian life and in our Christian faith is when we forget that fundamental fact. We forget all that God has done for us, and we freeze in fear when trials come, and, and we doubt that the Lord is on our side. Maybe he's not really um, there or ready to help us. Samuel, though, recognizes that the issue is when we forget these things. And so he wants to ensure that the nation doesn't forget. And so he puts in place a monument so that the people would remember. Verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Uh, This is a stone that represented God's help. It's a stone of remembrance. Uh, Evan in Hebrew is, is uh, the word for stone or rock. Etzer means to remember. And so you put them together, Evan Etzer, Ebenezer, and you have this uh, rock of remembrance, uh, remembering the Lord's help. And then notice what he says, though. For he said at the end of verse 12, till now the Lord has helped us, or up to this point, the Lord has been helping us. I think that's interesting because he could have said, today the Lord helped us, right? This is, this is after this great defeat at Mizpah. He could have said, now the Lord has helped us. But he doesn't say that. He says, up until now. He doesn't just include this, this most recent victory, but he reaches back. He wants Israel to reach back in their collective memory and say, every victory has been on account of the Lord's help. The victory at Mizpah is just one more in a long list of deliverances that the Lord has given to his people. And so he wants them to remember not just this one day, not just this one victory, but every blessing, every mercy, every victory from the Lord's hand. And so he says, up to today, up to this day, till now, the Lord has been helping us. And so I would invite you to look back on your life, dear Christian. Do you see how the Lord has been your help, not only today, but all the days leading up to today? Do you see the, the string of kindnesses that, that, that the Lord has, has used to, to bring you to this point right now? What's the only natural conclusion as you look back on your life and you see all the ways the Lord has, or you see all the blessings you've received, all, all the kindnesses that have been yours. What's the only conclusion except that the Lord has been your help through all this time? And the, the, the logical then next step is to say, if the Lord has been my help yesterday, and if he's been my help today, then he must be, he will be my help tomorrow. No matter what trial comes no matter what you face. And if that's true, if the Lord is your help yesterday and today and all of your tomorrows, then what reason do you have to not return to him right here and right now? Isn't this the the, the greatest reason to return to the Lord is that he's been your help 
and he always will be. Those who return to God through the mercies of Jesus Christ can cling to this immeasurable comfort that there is nothing in all of creation that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take your word now and that by your Holy Spirit you would apply it to our hearts and our lives, that it would change us, that it would make us into the people that we're meant to be. We thank you that you are our help. We ask that you would forgive us for the times that we forget that. And would you instead help us to recall all of the past Ebenezers in our lives and that the knowledge of past faithfulness would be indeed for us uh, the certain uh, hope of future deliverance as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.